Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We left off last week looking at the life of Samson. We were given a look into what bondage really looks like. Philip, Philip Yancey, in one of his books, gives us today's equivalent of that. He writes, I know a lifelong bachelor who has a pornography addiction. Due to diabetes, he has lost all vision in one eye and 90% in the other. He lives in a cluttered, filthy house and rarely ventures outdoors. With his few remaining teeth, he eats whatever the Mills on Wheels social program delivers to his house each day. To save on fuel bills in the winter, he bundles up in a down jacket and pulls a stocking cap down over his head. Despite his poverty, he spends much of his Social Security check on X-rated pornography. Every night, he drags a chair very close to the television monitor and fumbles to insert a DVD. He then holds up a large magnifying glass to scrutinize the naked bodies on the screen. When I read that, I thought, if there is a better illustration of bondage, I don't know what it is. But no matter the bondage, no person has to be bound, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. I guess the first thing I want us to notice is the authority on which Jesus speaks to this matter. He begins by telling them, most assuredly. There is no ambiguity with him when it comes to sin and its possible dominion over a human life. He speaks in clear and precise terms that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Luther's favorite definition of a sinner was homo ense incurvatus, which being translated means man curved in on himself. And Malcolm Muggard spoke of that dark little dungeon of my own ego. Or as Jesus says in verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. This is where we need to remember the importance of context when it comes to scripture. Keep in mind that the group that he is speaking to are people who are under the dominion of sin. And yet... They have convinced themselves that not only are they not sinners, they are not only, not, they're actually not only righteous, but they consider themselves more righteous than almost everybody else. That's something, isn't it? Sin has the ability to completely blind us to reality. And what's more, it can even make us feel good about ourselves. In a Newsweek article entitled, Hey, I Am Terrific, they noted this is a culture in which American school children actually outrank Asian school children. Not in math ability, but in their self-confidence about their math ability. Sin is just like that. We can be confident in our non-ability. And yet the whole time a person is shackled to their sin while they rejoice thinking they are free. When in actuality they are doing things that are taking them further and further into bondage. 
Not only that, each wrong choice forges a link in the chain that binds us. It has been said that taking the easy path is what makes both people and rivers crooked. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Lock Up. It goes inside of prisons and lets you meet some of the inmates. The thing that always amazed Connie and I was the pride and arrogance of many of the prisoners. They would speak of themselves in glowing and grandiose terms. And it was as if they didn't realize they were basically living in cages and speaking to the interviewer between iron bars. But to hear them talk about their lives, you would think they were CEOs of a Fortune 500 company. And yet they were sitting right there in chains. Augustine had this insight. He writes, I was bound not by iron imposed by anyone else, but by the iron of my own choice. The enemy had a grip on my will and so made a chain for me to hold me a prisoner. By servitude to passion, habit is formed, and habit to which there is no resistance becomes necessity. By these links connected one to another, a harsh bondage held me under restraint. The goat, we say, must graze where it is tied. The sinner likewise must feed on earthly things because he is staked to the earth by his carnal heart. I guess the worst kind of bondage is the kind that the prisoner himself does not recognize. He thinks he is free, yet he is really a slave. The one who continually sins will become enslaved to that sin. And sin is a cruel master indeed. By offering pleasure for a season, it is initially comfortable to serve into the household of sin. But sooner or later, sin eventually throws everybody out on the street. But here's what I want us to understand. Each sin that we commit is one more wrap of a chain around our lives, whether we believe that or not. Not only that, people often commit sins in order to relieve stress caused by other sins. What do I mean? Well, let's say you wrong someone, then when you're confronted, instead of admitting it and apologizing, you tell a lie. And when they don't believe you, you get angry and begin to harbor hateful thoughts against the person that you wronged. And so you're like, of all the nerve, how dare you not believe me when I tell you a lie? That's how goofy we can be, and that's how deceitful that sin is. So now instead of the initial sin, we have now added lying, anger, and hatred to the mix. All I want us to remember is that when you are done with sin, sin is not done with you. There is always the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, 7 tells us, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh from from, will from his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What does that mean in terms of what we're talking about? Paul uses a farming metaphor here. In farming, you'll only reap in proportion to how much you sow. 
For example, you can't sow five or six seeds and expect to harvest an entire field. In fact, there are three laws of sowing and reaping that we need to understand. First, you will reap what you sow. God established this kind of fact when he said, let everything bring forth after its kind. That means if you're sowing corn, you're not going to harvest wheat. And if you sow tomato seeds, you're not going to harvest watermelons. It's a law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. Secondly, you reap after you sow. The harvest comes after the planting, and for a believer, that can be torturous at times. And that's because you can keep sowing and sowing and sowing good seed into your marriage or your children or your ministry or your job, but you don't see any good fruit from all the faithfulness that you're showing and all that hard work. It's hard because we live in a culture where we have become accustomed to getting everything that we want almost immediately. With a push of a button, the TV comes on immediately. We stick our food in the microwave, and in a few seconds, it's ready. We demand super fast internet speeds where with one click of the mouse, we move from one web page to the next almost instantly. And so this mindset tends to carry over to our spiritual lives where we want to, an immediate return on what we do for God. But that's not the way that it works in physical farming or with spiritual sowing and reaping. But this also works in the negative. The person who is living with her boyfriend or girlfriend or the person who's having an affair or taking drugs or involved with internet pornography or messing with the occult, they make the mistake of thinking, nothing bad has happened to me so far. Things are going good in my life. So what I'm doing can't be all that wrong. Remember Samson from last week. You need to understand that in farming what you sow today, you won't reap today. The harvest comes later, and the same thing is true in our lives. If I sow irresponsible or sinful actions in my life today, I won't reap those consequences until later. And sometimes it may be years later when lung cancer shows up or cirrhosis of the liver or AIDS or your marriage fails or your world caves in. You don't reap before you sow. You reap after you sow. But it often doesn't happen right away. And again, the classic mistake that people make is thinking that because they aren't suffering any negative consequences at the moment, and in fact, sometimes seem to be being blessed by God, and so what they're doing and how they're living must really not be wrong. Now, the reason they are misinterpreting the circumstances is because the goodness and grace of God often aren't removed immediately from a person's life once they start down a path of sin. But make no mistake about it. God is not blessing your sin. He might be blessing you in spite of your sin because he wants his continued goodness and blessing in your life to lead you to repentance, Romans 2, 4. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking you can violate anything God says in his word and not eventually reap the consequences. And finally, you will reap more 
than you sow. If you plant one apple seed, you'll get an entire apple tree with many apples on the tree, each containing many seeds. Or if you plant a grain of wheat, you'll get a whole stalk containing many grains of wheat. And likewise, good or bad, what we, sh what we sow will eventually multiply in our lives. Now, to avoid any confusion, I need to address something here. What I want us to understand is that Jesus is not speaking to Christians who sometimes fall into sin. We are no longer slaves to sin even when that happens. How do I know? This is Romans 6, 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now get this. For sin shall not, have, shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, this is the part I want you to listen to. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were now committed. And having been freed from sin, you now become slaves of righteousness. Puritan William Gurnall gives us great insight here. He writes, Sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law but grace. That is, no sin shall be your commander. Sin may stir like a wounded soldier on its knees, and many of them may rally like scattered troops, but they will never win the battlefield where true faith is moving. That teaches us we are no longer under the dominion of sin if you are a Christian. Here's the difference. We are, the Bible says, the sheep of his pasture. And in the animal kingdom, when a sheep falls into the mud, they hate it and immediately want to get out of it. But when a pig falls into the mud, it loves it and never wants to leave. Why? Because each of them have a different nature. So too with believers. Sure, there will be times when we fall in the mud, but it won't be long before we will want to leave it and be cleansed because that is no longer our nature to wallow in the mud. Sin may cling to the Christian, but he or she hates it. However, the non-Christians cling to their sin, and they love it. And that, boys and girls, is the difference between a sheep and and a pig. I feel like I'm teaching on Sesame Street. But the danger lies in our appetites. We can either hunger and thirst after God, or we can give in to our sinful appetites. And when our sinful appetites are extrapolated out, the Bible tells us that that leads unto death. Thomas Costain's book, The Three Edwards, describes the life of the Third. He was a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. 
grossly overweight, Raynaud was commonly called by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. After a violent argument, Raynaud's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Raynaud, but did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Raynaud in the castle and promised him he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and a door of near normal size, none of which were locked or barred. The problem was Raynaud's size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother. Every day he would send a variety of delicious foods into the room, probably a lot of little Debbie cakes. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, Raynaud instead grew fatter. But when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he always had a ready answer. He would say, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he so wills. Do you know, Raynaud stayed in that room for 10 years and wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. But by then, his health was so ruined that he died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. One old Puritan wrote, Master sin uses people for its own evil purposes. And when the body of slave is wasted from use, the slave is cast out. The son has come to liberate sin slaves from their old master, allowing them to become children of God. Look at verse 35 with me. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. The contrast here is between a son who is the inheritor of the father's property and whose rights cannot be denied or taken away. And the other is a slave who, although he may enjoy some of the privileges of being a son, or I'm sorry, being in the same house as a son, nevertheless, he can be sold at any time and thus lose his privileges. Because the servant has a slavish relationship to the head of the home, he lives in fear that if he doesn't perform, he could be thrown out at any time or beaten. But the son has a totally different relationship. Yes, he obeys the head of the home, but the son has the assurance of unconditional love. Now, Jesus looks at these very religious Jews and says, I want you to know you have a slavish relationship to God. You're just as much inside spiritually bound up in a slave as those pagans who are addicted to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Don't you see? There is a different kind of slavishness in you. And unless you come to the Father through me, you will always remain slaves. However, I can give you a relationship with the Father that's based on intimacy and security. Whereas your present relationship to Judaism is based on pride and compulsion and fear. What he's really saying there is, I'm not just a teacher or a prophet. Because a teacher or a prophet just comes to tell you to change your behavior. If I was just a teacher or a prophet, I would say, do this and don't do that. Change your behavior. But I have come to change your status. I come and through me, your relationship to God can move from slavery to sonship. That's what he's saying in verse 35. I can do this for you if you will but allow me. The result of that? 
Verse 36, please. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus promises us that if he makes us free, we will be free indeed. The problem is sometimes we can feel anything but free. And that's the rub, isn't it? Do we really believe what Jesus says about us and our freedom or will we rely on our feelings that can be extremely fickle from time to time? The thing we have to understand is that Jesus is speaking of two different types of freedom. There is positional freedom and that we are free in a judicial sense because of the sacrifice on the cross. But there is also a practical freedom in how we live in day to day in regards to our old way of life. There are a few important applications to our own lives we can take from this teaching. First, we must not trust in our own judgment alone on spiritual matters. Our knowledge is limited. We are not impartial. We must not just trust our way of looking at things. Jesus is offering freedom, but his freedom means we must completely surrender to who he is. Now, this is absolutely contrary to the world's freedom, which is all about taking care of number one. So what Jesus offers can seem upside down sometimes. But maybe the problem is that we spent so much of our lives looking at something upside down that it seems right side up to us. As wild as it sounds, maybe we should consider the possibility that the whole world is crazy and only Jesus has it right. The Poseidon Adventure is a movie about an ocean, air, or an ocean liner that hits a terrible storm. A wall of water crashes through the ballroom. Men in tuxes and women in evening gowns are screaming and running for cover. Amid all the confusion, after the lights go out, the ship flips over. Now, there is enough air trapped inside to keep the liner floating, but it's upside down. But the passengers are in full panic mode, frantically trying to save their own lives. They're so confused that they begin climbing the stairs to the top deck. The problem is that this, that deck is now 100 feet underwater. Getting to the top of the ship means drowning. The only survivors are those who challenge the old established logic of up and down. While others rush to their doom, these wiser passengers descend into the dark belly of the ship until they reach the hull. At the bottom of the ship, they find the surface of the ocean, which is actually the top. Rescues, rescuers hear them banging at the hull, and they cut them free. You know, very much like that, the ship of this world has turned upside down. So that what looks like to us is really the way to destruction and what seems like down to us is really the way to salvation. This is the point of Proverbs 3, 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean onto your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Whatever Jesus says must be believed, 
And our own reasonings on spiritual matters must be subordinated to that. The Bible speaks of our duty along these lines by pointing to the proper goal of demolishing every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought and making it captive to the obedience of Christ. Perhaps an illustration can help. Most vehicles have power-assisted steering. And the moment I touch the steering wheel, the power is supplied and the wheels will now turn. But if I do not touch the steering wheel, nothing will happen. The servo mechanism does not decide to move the wheels. I do. But I cannot do it without the power. I sense this may be something like that lies behind the famous and honest prayer of, I believe, O oh God, help my unbelief. God will do everything in his power to help us, but he cannot decide for us. It also lies behind the notion of the Holy Spirit or the Comforter who comes alongside to help us. He has the power, but it is available to us only if we avail ourselves to that power. Okay. I believe that I am positionally free this morning, you say. But very often I feel anything but free practically. So how do I apprehend that? I'm going to tell you. It's simplistic and it's what you would expect a pastor to tell you, but it's also the truth and the only way to enjoy the freedom that is offered. Study your Bible, fast and pray, make church a priority, and actively obey the things that God shows you to do, and stay away from the things that you know pull you away from the Spirit-filled life. Otherwise, your Christian life is going to be a journey on a miserable treadmill. And speaking of treadmills, as we finish up this morning, treadmills are okay if you just want a little exercise. You may even own one. But if you're anything like us, you just hung clothes on it until we finally got rid of it. It was like it was always sitting there mocking us as we watched TV. I called it the dreadmill because I dreaded getting on it. Unfortunately for many people, religion feels just like that, running on a treadmill. They're working hard, but they're getting nowhere. That's a sad image for one way to approach the Christian life, especially if you knew the history that was behind the treadmill. You see, in Victorian England, treadmills weren't found in air-conditioned health clubs. They were found only in prisons. Treadmills, or tread wheels as they were called, were used in penal servitude as a form of punishment. Now, some tread wheels were productive, grinding wheat or transporting waters, but others were purely punitive in their nature. Prisoners would be punished by spending the bulk of their day walking up an inclined plane, knowing that all their hard labor was for nothing. The only hope the prisoner had was that at some day in the future, he would have paid his debts to society and could be set free. He couldn't even look at his labor at the end of the day and know that if nothing else, at least he'd been productive. If you struggle with sin in your life, remember that Christ has set you free indeed. And you're no longer sentenced to be chained to the treadmill of sin and failure. He has paid the ransom demanded for your release. And now you can walk in the freedom of the glory of the sons and daughters of God. 
This can be your experience this morning. Are you one who has heard the truths of Christianity and who needs to come to Christ as your Savior? You can come right now. You don't need to do anything but commit yourself to him. Believe these truths. You are a sinner. There is a judgment day coming, and Jesus died for your sin. Do not linger any longer in the bondage of spiritual ignorance. All we have to do to avail ourselves of the freedom that Jesus has purchased is just to accept it. We'll come back next week as we'll be stepping away from the Gospel of John for our Christmas sermon. And Father, like Jonathan Yo said, I remember what being in bondage was also. Such a miserable existence. And I'm thankful that you have set everyone free who wants to be free. And I pray, Lord, that everyone within the sound of my voice and who will watch this later on the Internet, that you would speak to their heart. Lord, you would show everyone where they truly are with you because we can so deceive ourselves so easily. Open our eyes, Lord, that the God of this world has blinded and let us see you and our condition for what it really is. We ask in your name. Amen.